Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. This week, we are going to tackle a big topic, the Civil War. In this titanic conflict, the Navy began with only 42 ships in active service and had orders to blockade 3,500 miles of coastline and to seize control of the South's rivers. Over the next four years, the Union Navy would swell to almost 700 warships, lead the world technologically, and play a vital part in reuniting the nation in the bloodiest war the United States has ever fought. The war can also be thought of as the first modern war, a war where technology, industry, and joint operations played decisive roles and marked a clear transition from the Napoleonic era of horse and infantry line tactic warfare into the era of screaming shells, trenches, and scorched earth, which marked the 20th century. Beginning with the election of anti-slavery Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln, who was so unpopular in the South that he didn't even appear on the ballot of 10 Southern states, Southern states began to secede, led by South Carolina, where 58% of their population were black slaves. Lincoln intended to keep his inaugural oath to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution and nation, and so Lincoln authorized a supply ship to go reinforce the loyal troops at Fort Sumter in the middle of Charleston Harbor. At that point, Confederate President Jefferson Davis ordered the surrounding forts to open fire on Fort Sumter, which then surrendered two days later. The day after Fort Sumter surrendered, Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the army, which triggered four more states to secede and began the Civil War. The Navy's biggest strategic proponent early in the war was actually the U.S. Army's General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott, if you remember him from the Mexican-American War podcast. And he was known by his men as Old Fuss and Feathers. So Scott proposed to Lincoln that the Navy adopt a complete blockade of the Confederate coastline and that the Navy take the Mississippi River, while the Army would primarily grind away at the Confederates in Northern Virginia. This strategy became unofficially known as the Anaconda Plan and would exploit the weaknesses of the South. With little industry and railroad track, the South would be reliant on cash raised through the sale of their slave produced cash crops to buy supplies from overseas, and coastal vessels for internal transportation. Taking the rivers would also open up new fronts in the war, which the less populous Confederacy did not have the manpower to defend. Throughout the war, Scott's proposed anaconda would slowly crush the Confederacy through an attritional war which, unfortunately for the Confederacy, could not be fought with cotton balls. So just five days after the surrender of Fort Sumter, Lincoln announced a naval blockade of the Confederate states, which at least initially existed only on paper. With hundreds of small ports and rivers and inlets scattered across 3,500 miles of coastline, Lincoln was proposing the greatest blockade in world history, and one that even the greatest navies in the world would have found an impossible task. And the United States Navy was far from one of the greatest in the world. As I said, they only had 42 ships on active service, and most of these were scattered around the world on squadron duty. And so when Lincoln went to his Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, and said, how many of these ships can be put into service at once? He was like, well, 12, which clearly wasn't going to cut it. So the first thing Wells did was he recalled all the squadrons, and then he placed orders for 24 steam and propeller-driven warships that he didn't actually have the funds to cover on the, as it turns out, correct assumption that Congress would agree to fund them retroactively. He then simultaneously began the mass conversion of merchant steamships into make-do warships for blockade duty. Since the South didn't really have a navy, 
all you had to pretty much do is reinforce some decks, throw some cannons on it, because you were just trying to dissuade and capture and destroy any merchantmen that were going back and forth, and they weren't expected to go head-to-head with another warship for the most part. By this point, the advantages of steam warships were clear, and a few sailing ships were built throughout the war. But the Union faced the logistical problem of supplying all of these new ships with coal. So the Navy decided that to accomplish its blockade, it would need to capture and hold bases off the Confederate coastline to serve as staging and logistical bases for the fleet. The first of these bases was Port Royal, which is halfway between the major Confederate ports of Savannah to the south and Charleston to the north, and had the advantage of being protected by swamps from counterattack by land. With a squadron of eight warships, including the USS Pocahontas, whose captain's brother commanded one of the defending forts, Captain DuPont led his squadron and 70 army transports full of supplies and men into battle. Since naval cannons outranged the guns of the two Confederate forts defending Port Royal, DuPont sailed his warships in a racetrack oval, firing on each port on one leg of the oval, until both of the forts were forced to evacuate and were taken by the army. Similar operations would go on to establish bases at Biloxi, Mississippi, Key West, Florida, and Hampton Roads, Virginia, which served as some of the major bases of operations for the blockading fleet. As for blockade duty itself, it was terrible. They consisted of hot, boring days at sea, keeping an eye on the horizon outside of mostly minor ports and inlets, hoping to see a smudge of soot indicating a ship, but on most days, most weeks, and even some months, there was just nothing. The Confederacy only had traces of a navy, and all the big, slow transport ships, usually used to carry cotton to the European factories, were abandoned or used for scrap. Maintenance and cleaning filled most of the days of the sailors, just like most days for most sailors aboard warships today. When night fell, especially on moonless nights and during foul weather, a full watch kept an eye out for a shadow gliding in the dark water, or the soft chuff of steam which indicated a small, fast blockade runner might try their luck. These blockade runners usually were heading for Spanish Cuba or British Bermuda, but they would offload their cargo of cotton to a neutral ship and then take on a load of goods for the return race home. When a lookout thought that they might have seen something, the Union ship would shoot up flares and signals into the sky and ring the bells to bring the crew from their hammocks and into battle stations ready for the chase firing on the fleeing blockade runners whenever they were in range. About 80% of the time, though, the blockade runner dispiritingly got away, but those 20% added up over the years, especially when the blockade had to be run in both directions. By the end of the war, over 1,400 blockade runners would be captured or destroyed. A few factors helped the Union with the blockade, especially early in the war when the Navy's blockade of the massive coastline was more theoretical than anything. The first was a move that in hindsight was unbelievably stupid on Confederate President Jefferson Davis's part. He instituted a self-blockade. On the mistaken theory that the British and French textile producers were so dependent on southern cotton that by withholding this vital input, they could convince one or both European powers to intervene on the Confederacy's behalf, Davis prevented the export of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of cotton to raise money for the purchase of war material. The British largely shrugged off the export ban and were able to increase cotton production across the empire instead. The second big mistake the South made regarding the blockade was its utter failure to regulate what the blockade runners were importing until late in the war. 
with really limited capacity because each of the blockade running ships had to be small and fast. The blockade runners should have been importing guns, gunpowder, and other industrial war goods that the rebelling southern states could not produce for themselves, instead of whatever they thought would bring them the most profit, which often turned out to be consumer goods due to the widespread shortages and thus sky-high prices. Jefferson Davis's embargo was reversed in 1861, and the blockade runners were eventually regulated, but by that time, the Union blockade was much tighter, and the Confederacy missed their golden window, and that seriously harmed their war effort. By the last year of the war, Confederate cotton exports had been cut by more than 95%, but equally, if not more importantly, was the blockade's effect on the internal transportation of the Confederacy. With all coastal maritime traffic cut off, more demand was placed on the already inefficient and severely underdeveloped Southern Railroad system. As the railroads began to break down throughout the war, the South lacked the industrial capacity to make up for these losses, and both the civilian population and the military began to suffer. Bread riots erupted in major cities, and the supplies that the Confederacy did have were often stuck hundreds of miles away from the front, awaiting transportation. Overall, the blockade probably did help speed along victory, and over the course of the war, the Army and Navy worked together in what were then called combined operations to gradually capture most of the major ports and coastal cities of the Confederacy. But alone, the blockade would not have been enough to force the Confederacy to accept Union dominance. The Confederacy's response to the blockade, along with blockade runners, was the typical response of weaker naval powers when fighting a stronger one, commerce raiding. Just like the United States had used so effectively against the British, during both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. From the first days of the war, the Confederacy issued letters of marque to entrepreneurs, but the scheme overwhelmingly failed, with only 21 privateers going to sea and capturing only 18 Union ships, compared to the approximately 500 American privateers who captured over 1,400 British ships during the War of 1812. The reason Confederate privateering failed was the refusal of neutral ports to accept the captured vessels, and the blockade of the Confederate ports, which stripped the profit from the endeavor. In place of privateers, the South used commissioned raiding ships. Although the Confederacy could only afford about a dozen of these British-built raiders, they did manage to burn 228 Union merchant ships. The most famous and successful of these raiding captains was Raphael Semmes. When the war started, Semmes resigned his commission from the United States Navy and was commissioned in the Confederate States Navy and then given command of a converted paddle-wheeler, the CSS Sumter. Sailing her through the Caribbean and across the Atlantic, Semmes managed to capture or burn 18 Union merchantmen before he was trapped in Gibraltar by U.S. Navy warships. Semmes then sold the ship, and then he and his officers made their way to Liverpool, England, and Semmes then took command of the CSS Alabama, an international crew of seamen. Over the next year, the Alabama led Union pursuers from the North Atlantic through the Caribbean, to the Brazilian coast, into the South China Sea, and then all the way back again, capturing or burning about 64 ships along the way, before it was sunk off the coast of France by the USS Kearsarge. Still, though, the coastal blockade was only about half of the Navy's contribution to the war effort. The other half consisted of the River War. General Scott's original Anaconda plan called for the Union to seize the Mississippi River. You can't really overstate how important control of major rivers was in this era, especially in fighting on such a huge and still relatively underpopulated area like the southern United States. The side which controlled the rivers 
would be able to move their armies and supplies faster and outflank the enemy. Control of the Mississippi River in particular would split the Confederacy and would allow the Midwest to export its huge food surplus south and also provide Union troops a huge front from which they could strike out against the Confederate interior. And of course, deny all of the river's advantages to the south as well. For this task of river warfare, the War Department funded the construction of steam-powered, shallow-drafted gunboats, many with iron plate armor, to combat the series of fortifications that the Confederacy had erected to defend their waterways. Command of these gunboats was eventually given to United States Navy Captain Foote, who worked closely with General Ulysses S. Grant to provide artillery support and transportation for the Army. Working together, Grant and Foote first cracked open Fort Henry, which guarded the Tennessee River, and allowed Foote's gunboats to raid as far south as the river draft would allow in Alabama, destroying Confederate warships, transport vessels, and military supplies along the way. Grant and Foote attempted the same tactic against Fort Donaldson, which guarded the Cumberland River, which turned out to be a disaster for the gunboat fleet. From their batteries over 40 feet above the river, the much stronger Confederate fort ripped apart Foote's gunboats. But while Foote's gunboats dueled Fort Donaldson's guns, Grant's soldiers surrounded the fort and forced its surrender, along with all 12,000-plus defenders, and opened up the defenseless interior of Tennessee, which the Union quickly captured, including one of the South's few vital industrial cities of Nashville. Grant and Foote then turned their attention to the Mississippi River. As I mentioned, control of the Mississippi River, that father of waters, was invaluable and an assault had already begun at its southern end at New Orleans. As the Confederacy's biggest city and at the mouth of the Mississippi, New Orleans should have been guarded by a network of forts and a fleet, but Jefferson Davis chose to strip troops and the fleet from the city to defend Memphis against what he believed was going to be the bigger threat of northern armies advancing south through the southern heartland. Instead of a fleet and an army, the defense of New Orleans, when Captain George Farragut and the United States Navy came for the city in late April of 1862, rested on a small fleet and the 1,100 men manning the impressive forts of St. Philip and Jackson on either side of the Mississippi, 60 miles downstream of the city. Against Fort St. Philip and Jackson, Farragut led 43 ships. Now, Farragut was both a New Orleans native and a salty, salty old sailor. And at 60 years old, he had served in the Navy for 51 years, first as a midshipman at nine years old in the War of 1812 under his adoptive father, David Porter. At 12, he was a prize captain and trusted to bring a captured vessel into a friendly port. And by 24, he was in command of his own warship fighting pirates in the Caribbean. He served under Captain Matthew Perry in the Mexican-American War. And so by the time the Civil War rolled around, he was one of the most senior officers in the fleet and probably pretty unfazed by anything the Confederates were going to do in New Orleans. And also the sort of officer who just inspired a near worship and enthusiasm of service and literally everybody serving under him. Approaching the forts and the abandoned vessels which the Confederate defenders had chained together and as an obstruction across the river, mortar ships camouflaged with tree branches at night, advanced and traded fire with the forts, for two gunboats approached under heavy fire to clear that chain barrier. Farragut's ships then retreated and made preparations for the assault. When day after day of endless mortar fire failed to diminish the forts, Farragut basically lost patience and broke his fleet into three columns and advanced through the small hole in the river's obstruction chain and towards the bend in the river where the forts loomed on either side. 
Farragut had all of his ship's hulls painted with sand and mud to reduce visibility, and the first of the ships was directly under the fort's guns before the advancing fleet was spied and the two forts opened fire. At that point, they all sped up, speeding past the guns of the fort as fast as he could. The captain of the lead ship in the column found himself on the other side of the fort, facing 11 Confederate gunboats alone. And in his own words, it seemed like we were gone for sure. More ships began to slowly slip through that small gap in the chained together ships under fire of the forts. Fortunately, the Confederate aim was poor and the smoke which accumulated over the bend in the river on the calm night helped the Union. Even as the small Confederate defending fleet briefly engaged before fleeing as more of Farragut's advancing ships arrived. This early retreat by the Confederate fort basically gave up the Confederate chance of victory since their best shot was keeping the Union ships bottled up under the fort's guns for as long as possible. Commanding the battle from the top of his flagship's mast to see over the smoke which hung on the river, Farragut was yelling down at his crew when his own ship caught fire, and he was yelling, Don't flinch from that fire, boys! There's hotter fire than that for those who don't do their duty! Farragut commanded the advancing columns through the gap as a lone Confederate ironclad ram continued to harass the incoming fleet under increasingly accurate and deadly fire from the forts Jackson and St. Philip, as they finally found the range. By 4 a.m., 14 of the 17 ships Farragut ordered to run the fort had made it past, and now, facing the remnants of the regrouped Confederate fleet. Close fighting ensued, including some at such close range that after it was rammed by the CSS Governor Moore, the Moors firing down through her own bow at the USS Varuna and mortally wounded the ship. As the Varuna backed off the Confederate ramming ironclad and was sinking, she kept firing away until her gun ports were submerged. Eight of her enlisted sailors would go on to receive the Medal of Honor for fighting under that heavy fire aboard a sinking ship. As dawn broke, 13 of the ships of Farragut's fleet, which had evaded the ram ship and cannonballs of the fort, assembled to bury their dead and make some quick repairs, before steaming on upriver to New Orleans, which they met with little more resistance. With its army garrison gone, the city faced surrender or destruction, and the largest city in the Confederacy surrendered on April 29, 1862. This was a huge loss for the Confederacy. At this point, any realistic hope for French or British assistance or recognition died that day, as it became clear that the Confederacy was too weak to hold their largest and most commercially important city. New Orleans also provided the Navy a hub for the Union blockade and allowed the Navy to move up north along the Mississippi River as well. For a strategic victory, Farragut was promoted to Rear Admiral, the first officer in the United States Navy to ever hold the rank of Admiral. Farragut would go on to serve in the Navy for the next decade until he died in 1870 on active duty and after more than 57 years of service. The young lieutenants he led along the way always remembered him as a giant and they would go on in turn to lead the Navy in its role as a globe-spanning power in the coming decades, and included a young Lieutenant George Dewey, who commanded the USS Mississippi through the gauntlet of fire as part of Farragut's assault on New Orleans, and would later lead the Pacific Fleet during the Spanish-American War. While the Army held New Orleans and slowly advanced up the Mississippi from the south, Grant and Foote tore down it from the north. Ironclad and timberclad Navy gunboats would advance to each fortification on the river, position itself along the weakest angle to the fortress, 
and just pound away until the fort resembled a pile of dirt and bricks, often with the help of encircling army soldiers to cut off further reinforcements to the fort. Foote and Grant's combined operations eventually saved the Battle of Shiloh from disaster, and the Mississippi campaign culminated and ended when the immense Confederate fortress at Vicksburg, Virginia, which sat upon a 40-foot cliff overlooking a sharp bend in the Mississippi River, fell. After months of bloody siege warfare, Grant captured Vicksburg and cut the Confederacy in half along the Mississippi River axis. Paired with Lee's defeat at Gettysburg on the same day, the rest of the war was basically a militarily foregone conclusion, but it would be fought to the bitter, bloody end by Southern generals in denial that their army and society had been defeated, and on the hope that Lincoln would lose the election of 1864. Neither happened and the war ground on until Lee finally surrendered to Grant, who had been promoted by Lincoln to commanding general of the United States Army. So digressing a bit, the Civil War is a huge topic, and I could go on endlessly about the battles, the dozens of coastal cities taken, the failed Peninsula Campaign where the cautious McClellan utterly failed to use the advantage that the Navy could have provided him to power through and take the Confederate capital of Richmond in 1862. But what I want to talk about and illustrate are two aspects of the war that point to the beginnings of a very different mindset, the mindset of a modern war. The first is technology. The Civil War was both the last great pre-industrial war and simultaneously the first great post-industrial war. While tens of thousands of men still lined up in neat rows to shoot each other and sword-wielding cavalry still thundered across battlefields, Railroads also moved mass-produced supplies, rifled guns, and artillery. Orders flew across the continent in seconds by telegraph. And more importantly for the Navy, steam, armor, and mines revolutionized the way naval combat was fought. Even before the war started, the ascendancy of steam was clear, but the immense war funding for the Navy allowed the transition to happen at warp speed. The newer innovation was the ironclad warship. The first incarnation of an ironclad was a class of three French ironclad floating batteries, which saw action during the 1855 Battle of Kinburn against the Russian fort during the Crimean War. When the three French ironclads were towed to within 600 yards of the Russian fort and reduced it to rubble, while the defending fort's cannonballs bounced off the sides of this newfangled armored battery, both the British and the French immediately began building full-fledged ironclad warships. The first ironclad warship was the French Lorry, launched in 1859, instantly making all previous warships ever constructed obsolete. Britain launched her first ironclad in 1860, and by 1861, when the Civil War broke out in the United States, the two leading European powers were engaged in a full-scale naval arms race and had 28 ironclad warships under construction between them. Immediately after war broke out, the Confederate Secretary of the Navy embraced new technology and recognized that this quantum advance in naval technology could allow the Confederacy to break the impending blockade by the Union wooden fleet. Neutrality laws prevented the sale of British and French ironclads to the Confederacy, and so the Confederacy went to work designing and building their own warship. Almost immediately, though, several problems with building an industrial-era warship in a pre-industrial society presented themselves. First, There was no engine large enough to power an armored warship in the entire Confederacy, and the South certainly had no ability to manufacture such an engine. 
Instead, the Confederate States Navy floated the frigate USS Merrimack, which had been scuttled when the Union evacuated Norfolk following Virginia's succession. After floating and repairing the Merrimack and her already outdated engines, the project was further delayed by production bottlenecks in the manufacturing of the 800-ton armor required, and then again from shortages of rolling stock to transport the armor from Richmond where it was made to where the former USS Merrimack was being converted in dry dock to the CSS Virginia at Norfolk Navy Yard. Finally, in February of 1862, the CSS Virginia was launched. She featured a top speed of six knots, a one-mile and 45-minute turning radius, and a low inverted V-shaped superstructure above the waterline, and 12 assorted cannons protruding from her sides, and was armored with between one and four inches of iron armor. Captain Patrick Buchanan, in command of the Virginia, led a small squadron of wooden gunboats down the Elizabeth River and towards the blockading Union fleet of five large and 24 smaller warships. The Union ships knew that the Confederates were building an ironclad warship in Norfolk, but were shocked to see that it was sortieing so soon. Due to the slow speed of the Virginia and her underpowered engine, the Union frigates had about an hour to prepare, but it didn't matter. The Virginia advanced towards the most heavily armed of the waiting Union frigates, the USS Cumberland. As she advanced, cannonballs ricocheted off her iron hull and harmlessly sank into the river. The Virginia returned deadly fire into the unarmored Cumberland in Congress. At a right angle, the Virginia's ram slammed into the Cumberland, tearing a huge hole in her waterline, and she instantly began to sink, and almost brought the Virginia down with her before the Virginia managed to back out of the side of the mortally wounded Cumberland. The sinking Cumberland continued to fire broadside after ineffective broadside at point-blank range into the Virginia as she sank, but it had no effect. Seeing the Virginia's tactic, the captain of the Congress grounded his ship under the guns of the Union-controlled battery at Newport News Point, which the Virginia could not approach due to her deeper draft. From 200 yards away, the Virginia poured unrelenting cannon fire into the Congress with impunity until an hour later when her captain and a quarter of her crew were dead and the Congress surrendered. There was some miscommunication and the commander of the Union fort did not understand that the Congress was surrendering and that the Confederate gunboats were coming to allow the crew of the Congress to leave and then they were going to burn the ship. And so the Union fort fired on the Confederate gunboats approaching to accept the Congress's surrender. Buchanan interpreted this as the Congress double-crossing him and firing on the gunboats and ordered his XO to Burn that damned ship, Mr. Jones! She is firing on our boat under the flag of surrender! And personally took up his rifle to lead the punishment of the crippled Congress which burned to the waterline with incendiary shells. Next, the Virginia turned her attention to the USS Minnesota, which had also grounded herself in an attempt to escape the Virginia's close-range attack. But after firing on her from a longer distance, the Virginia retreated because it was getting dark and her deep draft required careful navigation to not ground itself in the shallow river. There would be plenty of time to finish the job tomorrow. In two hours, the Union had lost two ships and over 300 men. The Confederates had lost only two men, and the Virginia had suffered only minor damage, despite being hit over 100 times. Overnight repairs were hastily made, and at 6 a.m. the next day, the Virginia pulled out again to finish her previous night's work of destroying the fleet blockading the Hampton Roads ports. As the Virginia grew closer to the still-grounded Minnesota, 
her crew spied something strange. What was it? It was low to the water and looked from a distance like a boiler on a raft. It was, in fact, the USS Monitor. You see, while the Confederates were busy slapping iron armor on top of the reef-loaded Merrimack, the Union caught wind of the Confederate ironclad project and began building three ironclads from the keel up in response, based on the designs of the brilliant Swedish-born John Erickson. Less than three and a half months after beginning work, she was ready. The monitor was a mostly submerged vessel with a cylindrical, rotating turret and a pilot house that protruded from her freeboard, which was only 18 inches above the waterline and had a draft of less than half of the Virginia's. The monitor was a technological marvel, which reflected her inventor's genius. Armed with two 11-inch Dahlgren cannons, she set course for south from New York to the Chesapeake Bay. Arriving at the site of the battle at 9 p.m., just three hours too late to duel the Virginia that night, the monitor waited to defend the Minnesota the next morning at dawn. When the Virginia sortied again the next morning, Captain Warden of the monitor sailed her towards the Virginia without firing even as the shells of the Virginia and the Minnesota screamed overhead as the Virginia began its fresh bombardment of the grounded ship. Finally, at close range, Warden gave his order. Commence firing! At 8.45 in the morning, each of the ships began to pound each other in a hail of cannon fire so intense that Union Lieutenant John Rochelle remarked that no wooden vessel could ever have floated for 20 minutes under such a fire. And yet both ships did. For hours, the ships circled each other at ranges as close as a few feet. Both ships suffered from gunnery problems. On the Union side, outdated regulations on powder charge load prevented the heavier Monitor's guns from penetrating the Virginia's armor. And the Virginia had not expected to see the Monitor that day and brought only shell ammunition, which was effective against wooden ships, but ineffective at punching through armor. Still, the Virginia was showing signs of damage, and her captain tried to both ram and board the monitor, but both attempts failed due to her slow speed and poor maneuverability of the Virginia. The battle ended inconclusively in sort of a mutual retreat that was mostly an admission by both sides that they could not sink the other. Both sides would of course claim victory, though. The Virginia escaped with minor damage, and the monitor was unscathed, although Warden, her captain, been blinded in one eye by a metal fragment. While tactically inconclusive, the result was strategically vital in that it held the status quo and quashed any southern dreams of using the Virginia to single-handedly end the blockade and decimate the wooden Union fleet. It was the first battle between ironclads in world history, and it confirmed to the naval strategists in Europe and in the United States that the ironclad was an absolute revolution. The London Times commented that, Whereas we had available for immediate purposes 149 warships, we now have only two. Meaning the two ironclads that the United Kingdom thus far possessed, and this served to further dissuade either the English or the French from entering the war on the side of the Confederacy, when so much of their navy would prove worthless against the mounting number of Union ironclads. The Union would go on to commission more than 60 ironclads versus the Confederacy's 22, which kept the status quo of the blockade and the Anaconda Plan in place. The Confederacy also experimented with submarine warfare and recorded the first ever sinking of an enemy warship on February 17, 1864, by the H.L. Hunley, a privateer submarine which sank the sloop USS Housatonic in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. 
Shortly after, the Hunley sank from the force of the exploding mine she used to sink the Housatonic with the loss of her crew of eight. But as forward-thinking as the use of a submarine was, it played no significant role in the war. And what I think speaks more to the evolution of warfare in the Civil War was the development of what were then called combined operations, or as they are referred to today, joint operations. Long-standing rivalries between the Army and Navy, as well as federal law, prevented unity of command between the Army and Navy units, but the first hints of effective combined operations can be seen in the cooperation between Captain Foote and General Grant, who worked closely together to advance down the South's rivers. Elsewhere, though, progress was incredibly uneven. For every successful combined operation, there was a failed one to match. Numerous assaults on coastal cities and forts failed miserably, from what in hindsight was clearly a lack of coordination between the Army and Navy. This wasted most of the huge advantage that utter naval supremacy gave the Union. Still, though, over the course of the war, more officers began to see the advantages of combined operations, and victories such as New Orleans would not have been possible without the coordination between the two services. The culmination of combined operations at the end of the Civil War was the capture of the Gibraltar of the South, Fort Fisher. Together, Admiral David Porter and General Alfred Terry captured this immense fort which protected the South's last port to the outside world, completing the total blockade of the Confederate coast and severing the last, frailest string of hope for Confederate victory. Together, the Army-Navy won battles that would have been impossible were much longer and bloodier slogs than if either had acted alone. This first taste of joint operations was not yet formalized and would not be for more than another century, but it marked the beginnings of the experience that the Navy would take into the 20th century, history's biggest amphibious war, and the Navy's finest and most terrible hour, World War II. All right, that is all until next week when we cover the new Navy and also the Spanish-American War. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and tell all of your friends about this podcast if you enjoyed it, because I'd love for as many people to listen to it as possible. Thank you very much. Right on, it's a scene.